Uh, The second Bible reading tonight comes from Matthew uh, chapter 3 and we're reading from verses 1 to 17. Uh, You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1009. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, camel's hair and he had a, belt, a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already, is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, um, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill, the, fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, he says loudly. So far, the funnest part of my evening was on the drive here. Uh, Isabel, our three-year-old, announced to us that when she was a baby, Jesus cuddled her, which was good to know, both the fact she is no longer a baby and that Jesus cuddled her, but it got better because apparently her and Jesus jumped on the trampoline and they laughed and laughed, which was also nice. Whether or not all the facts of that story are true, I'm not so sure, but we know he loves us dearly, don't we? more than we've ever been loved. And it's our privilege to know him. Let's pray that we get to know him better in the next little while. Can I pray again? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your glorious Son, for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for how he delights in us, how he loves us, and all that he has done to show us his love and yours. Our Father, we pray that tonight you would blow apart our small thinking about the Lord Jesus. Show us again how wonderful majestic, powerful he is, that we might long to know him more deeply 
and live to serve him more. And we pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, the date was October 30, 1961. The place was Mityushika Bay in the Arctic Circle. And the event was this. Hydrogen bomb. Does anyone know in particular what hydrogen bomb it was? It's one of the few famous hydrogen bombs in the world. Now, rather than having random guesses, let me tell you about it. October 30, 1961, uh, the then Soviet Union detonated what is still today the most powerful weapon ever created. It was nicknamed Tsar Bomber, or the King of Bombs. It happened on the screen, did it? Yeah, okay. Ben Hayden's answer was right. Uh, it was a multi-stage nuclear warhead uh, with an explosive yield of 57 megatons. Now, just in case you're not up on your megatonnage, let me put it that in perspective. That's 1,400 times more powerful than the combined force of the two nuclear bombs that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In fact, it's 10 times more powerful than the total explosives used in all of World War II, including those two nuclear bombs. And what you were just watching there, when it was dropped by a specially designed release plane, it had to be parachuted out of the plane just to give the plane time to get away. The mushroom cloud you saw went 64 kilometers into the sky. That's seven Mount Everests. The fireball was almost 10 kilometers across, and the light could see, be seen from it, a thousand kilometers away. That's further than Sydney. It's shattered, win- shattered windows 1,900 kilometers away. That is Sydney. You don't have to cheer about shattered windows in poor old Sydney. Its shockwave, they say, could still be felt on its third orbit around the Earth. Sometime after detonation, a team was sent to ground zero, uh, well suited up, I assume. This is what they reported. The surface of the island has been leveled. No surprise, perhaps. Swept, licked, so it looks like a skating rink. The same goes for rocks. The snow has melted. Their sides and edges are shiny. There's not even a trace of unevenness on the ground. Everything in this area, they reported, has been swept clean, scoured, melted, blown away. And yet, while much was blown away, they say that on a chemical level... Much was, well, kind of blown together. Out of the chaos, a a whole new order had emerged. Mountains had been reshaped. Valleys had been refilled. The island itself had been recreated. In some sense, it had been made new. Now, the reason I tell you all that fascinating little story about Sarboma is that if you were to go back and stand in the pages of the Old Testament, and if you were to look forward at all that God had promised, that is exactly what you should have expected. 
not not Sarboma in particularly, but an event every bit as earth-shattering, every bit of cosmos-shaking, every bit of world-renewing as Sarboma. Indeed, you should look forward to an event even more destructive, more creative, more far-reaching, more long-lasting. And what event was that? It was the arrival of God himself. The moment when God himself would explode into our world to bring his kingdom in. The kingdom, Matthew will call for the first time in the chapter we read just a moment ago, the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom where heaven's rule would extend all the way to earth. Because heaven's ruler would actually come to earth with infinitely more power, more purpose than a thousand Sar Bomas. See, as we open up Matthew chapter 3, that's exactly what John wants to say, is here now. So would you open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 3? That's where we're spending most of our time, Matthew chapter 3. A chapter which begins by introducing us to John, the uh, wilderness preacher, the wilderness prophet, the, the wilderness preparer. The prophet who himself was prophesied about. See verse 3? The prophet who came dressed for the task. See verse 4? The prophet who drew all God's people out to himself. And why? Or to get them ready for the one who would explode into the world and change everything. And who was that? Well, interestingly, and I think surprisingly, especially for those of us with minds pre-filled with all the Sunday school answers, it wasn't the Messiah. And it wasn't the Christ. He said, who did John come to prepare for? Well, Isaiah 40 has the answer. That's why Matthew's quoted it for us there. See it there? That's why he wants us to know it. And not just the quote that he quoted, but the context around it. Let's look at it again. It'll come up on the screen. Listen again. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Here it is. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for who? Our God. Every valley should be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. Rough ground should be made level, rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord, I take it the Lord God, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the one who would change everything. Because John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the one who made everything. John came to prepare for God. And see, that's why he came dressed in those funky clothes, did you notice? Eating that funky food, did you notice? And sort of hanging out in that funky place as well. He did it so there'd be no mistake about who he was. And who would come after him? After all, it was to the wilderness, wasn't it? 
where God had, had drawn his people to himself, when he saved them out of Egypt, you remember? When he spoke to them from the mountain. And it was to the wilderness where the prophets like Hosea and Ezekiel had promised that God would one day act again. And so that's where John goes. And when he goes there, how does he dress? You see? Fairly itchy clothes, you notice there. He comes dressed like someone we've already met. Or, or at least we would have. If we had have known our Old Testaments, like these Jews should have known theirs. Do, do you remember? 2 Kings, chapter 1, verse 7. The king asked them, What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, He he was a man with a garment of hair and leather belt around his waist. And the king said, That was Elisha, the Tishbite, Elijah, the Tishbite. If you can keep correcting me from the front, that'd be very helpful. Now, we might look at this and say, Okay, great, nice one, John. Uh, You've come dressed as Elijah. Good work. I mean, my kids have AFL day at school where they go dressed as the mighty, mighty swans. This year slightly more proudly than other years perhaps. What's this? Prophet day at John's school. Everyone come dressed as your favorite spokesperson from God. Well, we might say that. That is if we hadn't read Malachi chapter 3, Malachi 3 verse 1. See, I will send my messenger, God speaking, who will prepare the way before me. And suddenly, the Lord, the Lord God you are seeking, will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Thanks very much. That's not much help. Pete, good work there. Well, we flick forward to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Some of the last words of the prophets before a 500-year silence before Jesus. Malachi ends with this. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Do you put the pieces together? Who does John come dressed as? Who was promised would come before the arrival of God himself? First the messenger, then the Lord. The messenger was John. Who comes next? But still, you might be unconvinced. Come on, Sorensen, you say. If we've met before, you know that's my last name. You don't actually expect me to believe that that John is Elijah. I know John's John. Elijah's Elijah. I ain't fallen for the old switch the prophet just so you can fulfill the Old Testament prophecy routine. Well, if that's you... Hear these words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. John is the Elijah we should have been expecting. He is the one who prepares the way for God. And when he arrives, you're supposed to know that God is coming next. See, that's why Matthew begins the chapter with those important but easily overlookable words in that little phrase, 
in those days. Did you see it? He waits for eyes to look down, looking for in those days. Now, first, I want to say that that kind of seems nothing special. I mean, what's Matthew doing? He's simply linking chapter 3 back to chapter 2, like any good storyteller should. Linking these days with those days, no big deal, nothing to ponder. Until that is, you do. You do ponder. You consider the context as our Pastor John is always us encouraging us to do. And, and you look back to chapter 2 and you, and you say, wait a minute. There's been over 25 years since the end of chapter 2, the start of chapter 3. I mean, Jesus was a baby or maybe a toddler, a little kid at least, at the end of chapter 2. He's clearly much older now. What do you mean, Matthew, those days? See, it can't just be a casual reference. Oh, in those days. This, uh, if it is, that's just plain weird that you would use it now. Well, unless it is, Matthew's doing something more than just sort of randomly stitching two chapters together. Unless Matthew's saying something much, much more, I think he is. See, I, I think those days, it, it doesn't refer to the days that just happened. It, it refers to all of Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. The, the everything we've been seeing and hearing about in the last few weeks together here, Matthew 1 and Matthew chapter 2 days. That those days when the, the family line of Abraham and David and the exile finally found the one it was looking for. When the, the angel came to Joseph, you remember? When the Magi came to Jesus, do you remember? When Jesus retraced the steps of the Exodus last week, do you remember? And when again and again and again, Matthew's at pains to remind us, and so was fulfilled. What was spoken through the prophets, so was fulfilled what the Lord God has promised. See, when all the threads of all the promises finally come together, when, when all the expectation to every reader who knew the Old Testament, as in Matthew chapter 1, should be building, Matthew says, in those days, John came. Because in those days, right there in history, God himself was coming too. You see, that's what makes that response of the people there in the earlier verses so completely understandable. Of course they would come to John. He was the preparer. Of course they would confess their sins. They needed forgiveness. Of course they went out to be baptized to express their absolute surrender to the God who must be coming next. I mean, what else could you do if you were about to face God? Now, I remember this song growing up. Uh, it was on, I'm pretty sure, uh, Christian TV ads. One particular ad had, had this jingle. It said something like, and feel free to sing along if you know it, when you get to heaven, what do you think you'd say? Maybe it only showed New South Wales. It said, you'll say, g'day, how you going? What do you know? Strike a light. Country New South Wales, I think. You'll say, g'day, how you going? You'll say, g'day, 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 and she'll be right. It's all right, I'm sorry, it's more embarrassing for me than it is for you. <laughs> 
I want to suggest to you the people who come to John knew better than the people who wrote that song. They knew when God comes, you don't just bowl out. Throw out your palm and say, G'day, God. How you going? They knew they had to throw themselves in his mercy. They knew that they had to have his forgiveness. They knew they had to declare absolute surrender before he came, before it would be too late. To the people's response there in the wilderness, absolutely understandable. And so is John's response to the religious elite. Did you see them coming out to John? When they come out, notice there, verse 7, to where he was baptizing. In contrast to the crowd who came out to be baptized by him. Did they come, I take it, on a surveillance mission rather than on a surrender mission? And so John looks at them, I imagine him looking them in the eye and saying, Who warned you? You snakes fleeing the fire. You who see verse 9 have about as much chance as entering the kingdom as those rocks on your feet. So long as you hold to your heritage or indeed to anything else instead of holding on to God. Get out of your driver's seat, he says, fall behind. Tear up your agenda, he says, start living for God. Produce fruits in keeping with repentance. I don't want to say I've been challenged by this. The same is, of course, true for us, especially for the religious among us, those who would call ourselves like they did gods, churching every week, owning his name. We too have to repent. We have to give up this thinking that God is there for us, for our desires to achieve our plans. So the really great thing about being a Christian is having God on our side, God on our team. Because this is the thing, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees needed to learn, he isn't on our team. It isn't our team. And if you've noticed, there's a really good reason it's not called Pete-ianity, this thing we're all in, or for that matter, John-ianity. I see you smiling. Or whatever your name is, ianity, it, it's Christianity. Because Christ is the captain. He is the coach. He's the star player. And when we sign up, it's him we serve. See, when you turn to Jesus and truly repent, and we really have to get this through our heads, it's, it's not so much that God aids your agenda so you can be the best you that you want to be. It's not even so much that God adds to your agenda, shuffles in a bit of church at the top of your list. It's, God completely rewrites your agenda. John talked to us about getting uncomfortable. Of course you will when he's writing the shots. He exchanges his ambitions for ours, our ambitions for his. We are to follow him. Produce fruit, John says, in keeping the repentance. Because God is coming. And he's coming soon. Listen again from verse 10. Matthew 3 from verse 10. The axe is is already At the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His his winnowing fork, it's in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable 
fire. Do you see it? The axe, it's already at the base of the tree. His fork, it's already in his hand. The way it used to work was the harvesters would bring in all the grain, bring in all the, all the wheat, and, and the harvester would get out there with his fan or his fork, and he would throw it up in the air. And all the light stuff, the chaff, would blow away. And all the heavy stuff would fall, and that's what you'd keep. That's what you'd burn. It's in his hand already, John says. He is coming right now to harvest. He is coming right now to gather. Three times we're told, did you see it? He is coming to burn. One of the things I've been struck by is reading through this chapter again and again over the last few weeks, and and rebuked by it, I think, too, is just how urgent the message of this chapter, indeed the whole Bible, is. Just how serious the message of John is. And for that matter, just how much he makes of the one who is to come. This is life and death, this stuff, John says. This is now or never, this stuff, John says. And this is all about, because life is all about the one who would come after him. You see that last part there in the sandal servant bit there, verse 11, do you see it, verse 11? See, apparently to take uh, the sandals off of your master, the, the, the same ones he'd been walking the dirty streets in, uh, those streets also walked in with the uh, not-so-toilet-trained livestock. To take those sandals off the master, well, apparently that was a job that was too low, even for the lowest of slaves. But you see, so great is the one to come, John says. So incredibly, absolutely, totally beyond me, John says. I am unworthy even to do that for him. One of the pamphlets uh, the Muslim group at the Deakin University where I work is, uh, puts out is called The Truth About Jesus. In it, amongst a lot of other things, they say this. Muslims view Jesus in the same way they view all the prophets of God. Highly respected. Highly loved. I take from these verses, if nowhere else, John would want to say to our dear Muslim friends, that's not enough. Now, in fairness, it's probably more than most of our neighbors would give Jesus. But it's not enough. Not when you consider the fact, this is the one all the prophets have been pointing to. He is the one to come. Do you see there verse 13? After the messenger who prepared the way for the Lord after the promise was repeated, after the Old Testament was quoted, verse 13, then Jesus came. Then the Lord God we were expecting came. I don't know about you, I have a lot of trouble getting my head around that. God, the man who was God, the God become man, came. And he came to notice from Galilee to be baptized by John, which I think begs a question, don't you? Why? I mean, the people came there, verse 6, to confess their sins. People came, verse 2, to surrender their lives. And, and I'm going to go out on a limb here. Tell me if you want to come with me. Given all that we've seen so far, everything that Matthew particularly has been so keen for us to know about Jesus, to expect of the one to come, it, I'm guessing this is probably 
the one person who don't need to do either of those things. I ask again, why did he come? Why did John to be baptized? Well, I want to say three reasons. I think it was three reasons. I think, first of all, it was to endorse John's message. I think Jesus wanted to make crystal clear, that guy, the hairy-suited locust-eating guy, he was right. Indeed, he is right. With all the urgency, all the seriousness, all the magnification of me, he's right. And second, I think it was to align himself with those very people going out to be baptized. To stand alongside those he would one day stand in the place of. To stand with those being baptized just as he would die for those being baptized and those who will be baptized in his name ever since. Most of all, first to endorse, second to align. Most of all, I think it was to identify himself or, or better to be identified by God once and for all, as the one to come. Do you see again Matthew chapter 3, verse 16? As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And if my memory serves me right, the last time this has happened, God spoke from, from heaven, was back at Mount Sinai, never since. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And I think by that he means more than, that's my boy. I'm proud of your son. Now what he means is, this is the one you were supposed to expect. The one I approve. The one I have sent. This is the saviour, the one and only. This is the ruler, the one and only. This is God himself, prepared for by John, promised throughout the scriptures, the king of the kingdom, if you like, Tsar Jesus, the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Again, we praise you, Father, for the Lord Jesus, God himself come to earth. God himself come to earth to live, to die, to rise, to rule. Our Father, we pray your forgiveness for when we think little and make little of the Lord Jesus. Would you please keep opening our eyes to your word, to your opinion of your Son, promised in the Old Testament, prepared for in the New declared God himself. Father, will you please help us make much of him in our obedience, our daily mundane obedience of life, but also in how we set our agenda, how we live our priorities. May they not, in fact, be ours, but yours. Please take us and rule us for his sake. Amen.